VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, if you're looking for Patty again, he's off. He'll be back next week, I believe. Tim Powers in here again today and until the end of the week. Unless my mouth gets me in trouble, I wouldn't bet against that. But uh, I'm going to try, of course, to always adhere to Canadian broadcast standards and have great discussions with all of you today. And there is a lot going on today. But before we get into that, I was listening earlier uh, to the program and I heard Linda's interview with one of the heads of lifeguard training in the country talking about the lifeguard shortage. And uh, again, real issue for parents uh, who want their kids to have some fun in the summer, go out and swim. If the pools are closed, you can't swim. Nobody's there to protect them. You can't open them i thought i've got a solution it involves ben murphy i think vocm stingray can put ben on a sabbatical because ben's a community guy give him the lifeguard uniform the speedos the whistle the the track pants and make him the new david hasselhoff turn him into ben baywatch murphy he can solve the lifeguard problem in newfoundland and labrador imagine all of the young people who would want to learn from ben and all of his knowledge around pools and swimming and staying afloat i know that young man at least can stay afloat with his mouth hopefully he can stay afloat with his other limbs and keep people safe there you go ben do the right thing sabbatical ben baywatch murphy i see potential there had to get that in i love giving little Benny Diggs. He can't come back at me right now. Maybe he'll come back at me when we do the Ottawa report on uh, on Monday. Okay, let me tell you one other little anecdote before we get into the news. Great morning. I don't know about you, but I think the parents particularly and the grandparents here can relate to this. Had a wonderful morning this morning, and it's it's only early here. It's only 7.30 here in Ottawa. Of course, it's 9 o'clock in Newfoundland and, Lab- and, and 8.30 in Labrador. See, I know my time zones. Getting ready this morning with my son. Brought him over to his mom's uh, before I started this. And uh, he, he and I are getting ready for a big race tonight he's doing his third 1k race just loves running i'm doing a gentle 5k through the experimental farm around here we do up this big sign he loves signs for when we do the race and he's all into right now the character sonic parents again can relate to this sonic the hedgehog 2 big hit movie now so we have to write the sign run like sonic run like sonic and i said Patrick, no chance I'm going to run like Sonic. Maybe you can, but it's just such a wonderful day. And I know yesterday was a bit negative and we're all a bit frustrated, but, or I was certainly just such a great day to start the the day with your children, particularly when they're younger, you're engaged, they're engaged, you're chatting. It's just simple and it's fun and it's enjoyable and it reminds us what's important. And got to say that was a special moment for me and many of you I know have had them as well. Speaking of moments, lots of news moments today. So let's start in the ream of healthcare. care. Uh, Dr. Fitzgerald is going to be doing a news conference at 12 noon, as Brian has said on our previous newscasts. Uh, VOCM will play the news conference at 1230. We'll cover it um, if there's immediate breaking news, of course, during the, the 12 o'clock hour. But you'll hear, I believe, the news conference in its entirety at 1230. Uh, Dr. Fitzgerald is expected to talk to um, the eligibility requirements around 
and fourth boosters. We talked about this yesterday. You remember I had a caller who was rightly pretty frustrated. He was 65. He'd gone in. He'd been accepted for a booster appointment. When he got there, they said he wasn't eligible. We went through the eligibility requirements yesterday on air. Technically, you're supposed to be 70 unless you're 12 years of age and older and have a preconditioning, preconditioned, a preconditioned conditioned um, comorbidity, pre-existing condition, I should say. I was having trouble with that this morning or some sort of comorbidity or something else that uh, medically qualifies you to get a booster earlier. Um, So Dr. Fitzgerald likely to give guidance in line with uh, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, which has said all people over the age of 12 should, who would like one, should get a fourth booster or a second booster, a fourth shot. Second booster, fourth shot, four if you're keeping score, if you've done the whole regime. So we'll hear about that. She's also going to give a bit of an update on the state of COVID in the province. There is a research group out of the University of Toronto who've reported that Newfoundland has the highest index of COVID right now. Now, again, I don't want to get into the weeds on all of that because I don't know the input and the output of the data. The University of Toronto in and of itself, of course, is a very reputable organization but certainly covid according to the university of toronto is at a higher level in newfoundland than it, and labrador than it has been more recently dr fitzgerald is better to speak to that than i am i know here in ontario we are going through a seventh wave with the ba4 and the ba um five variants so we'll see what the status of that is in newfoundland and labrador and what the fall may look like and are other measures contemplated or not you hear different jurisdictions talking about the return of some masking um and the uh, the the guidance that will come with all of that related to indoor spaces there's even some suggestion here in ontario where masks and outdoor spaces which flies against uh, some of what we've been told before anyway dr fitzgerald is the person to listen to on all of this she will be speaking to the province at uh, 12 noon island time 11:30 in labrador we will have all of that here for you we are trying to get dr fitzgerald to uh, tape an interview with her today because she's taking a well-deserved break after today uh, hopefully we will get that if not somebody on the vocm team will and we will play that for all of you now staying in the healthcare arena because it's been such a topic of discussion over the last few days the premier's meeting in british columbia has or is wrapping up. Our own premier said this um, in response to the argument that the federal government is making about uh, the ask of the uh, provinces and the debate over percentages of investment, uh, things which probably all make us go into a place of wanting to scream and preferring to have just service delivery issues dealt with. But our own premier said this. He said, what's not fake is the fact that the Canadian health care system is in crisis and all levels of government need to be at the table. The premiers are... Uh, I think demanding is the right word that the prime minister sit down with them soon uh, to address this, to address the funding shortfalls. Uh, of course, the federal government says we've been there. We've done a lot, $70 billion over the course of COVID. The provinces say, well, yes, great. Thank you. We appreciate that. But that's not recurring. There are real issues. We talk about them here every day on VOCM's open line. Uh, doctor shortages, um, issues with specialized treatment, facilities closing because of those shortages. 
which is real, real, real problems. Our premier says we need to, to act on them. He, of course, is leading a, an effort on health care transformation, so the spotlight is most certainly on him as well. Spotlight will be on Jean-Yves Duclos. Who is Jean-Yves Duclos? He is the federal minister of health. He is in Newfoundland and Labrador today. He'll be at Memorial University this afternoon at 2.45. He's doing an announcement with the Newfoundland and Labrador's new health minister, Tom Osborne, uh, apparently about uh, patient-oriented research. And as important as that is, uh, I think he will be pressed uh, to get some sense of, are the federal government hearing the premiers? Are everybody going to sit down and try and come up with some form of assistance and more importantly it's not just cash i think the whole system's got to be redesigned and you're seeing you know incremental aspects of that the federal government right now mr declos yesterday talking about dental care uh, you'll remember that when the liberals and the ndp did their supply and confidence agreement uh, some call it the remaking of the coalition particularly those on the right that they uh, they said uh, dental care is a key element we're going to fund it particularly for people in need mr declos on that dental care file uh, said that by the end of this year he still remains hopeful that uh, the government of Canada and the provinces, because the provinces ultimately deliver health care services, as we know, will come to an agreement to help uh, address uh, low uh, dental care for low and middle income kids, 12 years of age and older, I believe, or 12 years of age and under. Anyway, low and middle income kids, I'll get the proper classification. But there have been no talks on this, apparently. Uh, however, Mr. DeClose shares some optimism with us. We'll see. Our reporters will ask him about all of that. Dental care is but one aspect of um, health care that needs addressing. But I think the more pressing situation, as you hear these stories across the country, is emergency rooms, the state of um, the state of direct uh, immediate care, tertiary care, surgery backlogs and other places, specialties related to those surgeries in other jurisdictions. So I hope Mr. DeClos leaves Newfoundland, does not leave Newfoundland and Labrador until he gives us some answers. He's welcome to call this program. We will try and track him down if he is in fact landed uh, so we'll be watching all of that for you today so if you've got questions comments and all of that any of that i know there will be people who want to talk about whether you need another shot or not whether uh, what the government should do about that the politics around this is all very fascinating governments have the political leadership of governments have been a little quieter because of the discontent in certain quarters of the land and among different peoples about preaching and directing and encouraging people to take up COVID um, treatment mechanisms or COVID management mechanisms that are there. Will that change? Um, interesting that Dr. Fitzgerald is doing this announcement, I believe, today by herself. The premier certainly isn't back. I don't know if um, Minister uh, Minister um, Osborne will be there. Watch for the politics around all of that because this has become such a politically charged issue. I will tell you, I have no hesitation at all. I will be in line as soon as I'm eligible to get my fourth booster. I think, uh, or sorry, fourth shot, second booster. I think they have made a difference. I'm comfortable with the science. I believe it is, for me personally, my choice, the responsible thing to do. 
I'll be doing it. We're going to hear about that also today in Ontario. Uh, Dr. Moore, who is uh, Dr. Fitzgerald's counterpart, talking about all of that today. So healthcare, big today, every day, want to talk about a call. An update. Hey, Rogers customers, now you're getting, wow, you're getting a whopping $20 rebate. Rogers last night, breaking story, breaking story after the outage uh, that uh, disabled so many services and made life difficult for so people. How you feeling about your five days credit? That might be two on-demand movies or something. Uh, depends on what the pricing is in your d- jurisdiction. I suppose it's better than the one. Why do I say twenty dollars? Because the average bill breaks down to about four dollars a day, three eighty a day. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. This this. I thought they started okay in initially trying to communicate the response with the CEO out there, but every couple of days they're adding something else. I think we're. Not as concerned maybe about getting the 20 bucks, more concerned about actually getting reliable service. So uh, we'll see what will play out with Rogers over the next number of days. The Canadian radio and television communication that regulates telecoms uh, in Canada has told Rogers they need a full and comprehensive explanation of what happened. That follows, of course, upon the Minister of Industry running in to tell the chief executives of all these big companies they need to work together and they need to come up with a plan in 60 days. Again, doesn't do much for you right now unless it helps prevent these outages in the future. Want to talk about that? that by all means because i and if you still have if you're still out let us know let us uh let us do some crowdsourcing of response for you today a couple of more specific local issues we're going to talk to the mayor of mount pearl shortly dave acres about the dispute in mount pearl we're going to talk to ken turner the, the who runs the uh, the qp local out there about the withdrawal of services what's that what that is meaning if you're in mount pearl and you're aggrieved or you're not or you're happy give us a call give us your perspective what also mentioned something i saw on twitter by a former uh, cbc journalist ted blade spoken to ted before ted put something up that was uh, uh, was was interesting and it was about the pedestrian mall in st john so let the inner townie in me fall out for a moment and his point was should a pedestrian mall be more than just decks on restaurants and i think he's on to something there i mean it's great uh, my son and i were down there on the weekend it was lovely walking around the sun was shining people were having fun uh, in the past, I think I've seen people from the tattoo down there last summer. I've seen some others, but should there be more activities? Uh, I know here on the pedestrian mall on Spark Street, for example, they'll bring in exhibits for kids. They'll bring, oh, you, you don't want to miss this. My goodness, when we get the big pork fest here, and that's not politicians handing out patronage appointments, you might think that would be the Ottawa pork fest. No, it's the when they roll in with all those pigs, if you're a meat eater, and they barbecue them up boy it's something it's delicious but the pork fest yeah we could have some version of that in st john's maybe mark critch rick mercer and others shama jenner could do a great sketch of the sketch of the pork fest but do we need more in the pedestrian mall can we amp it up now that we've had it for a couple of years i think ted is on to something and you know what else i gotta say gotta say congratulations to my cousin and my friend john perlin who was put in as the honorary life president of the st john's 
regatta committee. Now, I love to tease John Perlin, but he's done a hell of a lot of good work for this province. It's a great accolade to receive. I know he loved and still loves, he's still living, um, the regatta and committed a lot to that, as he did with many other things. So congratulations, John Perlin. That may be the nicest thing I'll say about you today, but take it for what it is. You truly deserve it. Okay, time for our first break here on VOCM's Open Line. Remember, you want to get me on Twitter, at Powers Tim, or through email, openline at vocm.com. Well, welcome back, everybody. As we know, there's some trouble in Mount Pearl. But before we get to that, just and before I speak to Mayor Aker of Mount Pearl, I just want to tee up something a little later on, too, that I know you'll be interested in, as you will, this next conversation. And that is, we are going to talk to Duncan D. at about 10.35 Newfoundland time. Duncan is the former chief operating officer of Air Canada. He's got some fascinating insights and advice to give on living through this hell of travel this summer. Um, you want to hear that interview, particularly if you're going to travel. Uh, Duncan has had some good tips that I've heard elsewhere, and he's going to help unpack what is going on. But let's now go a little closer to home and unpack what is happening in Mount Pearl. Happy to be joined now by Mayor Aker. Uh, Dave, how are you doing? I'm very good, Tim. How are you doing today? Good. Well, it's been a while since I've seen you in person. I've seen you up here, as as people know, before, and you and I, of course, know at uh, FCM meetings. There haven't been as many of those in person these days, but good to, good to talk to you on this issue. So, Dave, just for the, the listeners, explain what has happened. We hear that services have been withdrawn by the union. As a consequence of those services being withdrawn, um, summer activities at your baseball field, your soccer pitch, um, uh, soccer pitches, the pickups of uh, of uh, garbage and the like has all stopped. We're told at least that this is because the union wants to strike a better deal around benefits uh, for their workers. There are apparently different benefit arrangements that exist. They would want more uniformity and equality. <laughs> What else can you add to that picture? What do I have right? What do I have wrong? And how do we get to this place? Well, that's a good way to start. And I think I have to go back to March. And, you know, both sides have been negotiating uh, since then. And, uh, you know, we've made, uh, you know, several adjustments to our offer over the course of time. And, and a lot of those changes that we proposed have been rebuffed by the union. But that's that's fair negotiation at the end of the day. You know, sometimes you're going to have differences of opinion. Um, so we, I think the, the Sunday before the strike was called, uh, the city put another proposal with the union, which talked about, you know, some of the changes that we were prepared to make and increased our compensation offer. Um, but we went then before the conciliator the next day to to talk about those proposals. And frankly, it went nowhere. And uh, the union said, well, we're going to go call a strike vote. And, and we were kind of prepared for it in the sense that they had set up their strike headquarters about a month before that uh, next to City Hall. Um, so we knew they were angling at least for, you know, to position themselves uh, for a strike. And then, of course, on Thursday, uh, they gave us eight hours notice and uh, uh, they hit the streets, which is their right to do so. We, we really respect that from, from an employer's perspective, but we also ask them to respect the fact that we still have work to do in the city. Um, so right now, there's a lot of emotion uh, in the air. Uh, a lot of uh, red herrings being thrown out there about, you know, two-tier benefit systems and the like. We've talked about that, if you like. Um, but, you know, right now, I think the biggest challenge we have 
uh, is trying to remove the uh, the emotion from uh, the event. Um, but it's difficult, right? Because the first week of a strike is is normally there's a big transition with people. Um, you know, our workers instead of coming to work at City Hall or enjoying the vacation are now on picket duty. Uh, our managers are trying to run the core services that we want to maintain. So you get into that battle. You know, you're you're into a battle where ultimately you have to sit down together and uh, and negotiate. Uh, but what's happening right now is there's a lot of chatter, um, you know, in the media. Uh, and on the ticket line, uh, that frankly, at the end of the day, I'm not prepared to discuss the details of any negotiations, um, but I am prepared to discuss about some of the behavior uh, that we've witnessed in the last week or so. So a couple, let me pick up on a couple of things you said there. First point, is, so you said in your last offer you um, were prepared to increase or did offer, offer increased compensation. Now, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but is that total compensation or is that salary? Well, you know, we can break it down. I'm not going to get into okay. what's on the table in terms of numbers. I don't think that would be fair, and I don't think Ken Turner would be either. Um, but we, we have a, a wage increase on the table. Um, okay. But when they talk about the two-tier, uh, the two-tier benefit system, um, all I can say to you, without getting into again the weeds, is that that's been very common in government the last few years. Uh, I think it's been the ultimate compromise between the employer uh, and some of the unions is that uh, you know severance pay basically has been the, has been paid out and, and no further employees on a go-forward basis will will accrue any severance pay. Um, yes, in some cases sick leave has been cut, but cut dramatically uh, for new hires, and in some cases in other municipalities they've gone uh, to new employees being on defined contribution plans. But we're maintaining our employees' uh, health and ben- health and dental benefits. We are not changing the pensions. We believe that that's right for a worker who works with the city for 30 plus years. They should be able to have into retirement health and dental benefits and. Uh, a decent pension that uh, that's not about reward that's so that they can live on uh, once they retire and then there's the compensation issue which you know frankly yes we're far apart on Um, but the only way you're going to close those gaps Tim um, whether you're talking about two tiers or compensation levels is uh, to be back at the table Um, my expectation as mayor is that the two parties get back together and they do it respectfully um, so you've said past. just on that on yeah. that, Dave. So you had a conciliator in there beforehand, trying to bring you together over the course of this journey. Yeah, that's part of the process, right? Typically, before yep. you would uh, you would call for a strike. But you don't have uh, anybody in there now. There is no third party arbitrator that's been brought in. You still would like to no. meet face to face with Ken Turner to resolve this issue. Yeah, well, that's the role of the conciliator, too, right? And uh, okay. we've reached out to, to that person on Monday, uh, and we've also reached out to QP Rep. That, you know, we're prepared to go back and, uh, and negotiate. The conciliator has to weigh, I guess, the, the probability of success. Um, but we're willing to go back to the table and talk about it. But, but frankly, we've moved off our positions. Uh, we think we're being fair in negotiations. Um, and, and what's left on the table, to be honest with you, is a number of items. There's about a half dozen or so. Uh, we're flexible on some. And we're saying to the union, look, in terms of the overall compensation levels, including benefits and that, we're flexible. You tell us which ones you want to go with or which ones you actually won't go with. But we're, we're, we're facing a stone wall here at the end yep. of the day where they don't want uh, ultimately to accept any of our offers. So uh, 
we're here. We're here with the uh, with an agreement, potential agreement in our hand, but we don't know how we can get there with all the emotion that's in the air. And the, the emotion always a challenge in circumstances like this because both sides firmly believe in their positions is normally the case. A, a, a couple of other quick questions for you. So I haven't heard affordability mentioned yet, and often in negotiations now, particularly between governments, whether they be municipal, federal, or, or provincial, um, there is an affordability issue that kicks in there because ultimately through the taxes that you raise, the, the benefits that you pay and the salaries that you pay to your employees come. Um, are, do you have concerns about what you can afford and can't afford? And more specifically, if I'm living in Mount Pearl and I'm a taxpayer in Mount Pearl, do I need to be worried right now that this is going to have a direct implication on my taxation? Well, I think overall compensation with the city's $50 million budget is $20 plus million. So, you know, we have to come up with an agreement that's fair to our employees. We think we've done that. But we also have to make sure that our residents and our uh, taxpaying businesses, too, uh, they have a voice at the table. Because, like, to be honest with you, Tim, everybody's coming out of COVID and there's a big yeah. infl- inflationary impact. Um, but it's not just unionized members who are affected. It's, it's working families as well right. here in the city of Mount Pearl and, and within the province and within the, within the country. So we're all dealing with that. And we've been through such a, a difficult time, as you know, together in the last uh, two and a half years. And uh, and frankly, when it comes to our summer recreation programs and, and the like, we were hoping we'd have a, not a normal summer, but a near normal summer. Because who knows what the fall begins. Um, but we've seen some bad behavior uh, with regards to the way our youth have been treated. And like on, on Saturday, one of our volunteers with uh, Mount Pearl Baseball literally ran to his car to get off and avoid the picketers because uh, the situation was extremely uh, intimidating. So all I would say, Ken, is let the kids play. Uh, and if you want to sit down with some of the sports associations and, and work out a fair way of respectful picketing and letting our kids play, um, I'm all in on that. Um, we have to create a separate lane here, I believe, in addition to negotiations, because negotiations do take time, Tim, as you know, yes. especially uh, if one of the parties is polarized in their positions. Um, but I don't think we should let the kids suffer. You, know, you think of the summer programs in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, you know, two months and we're done, right, at the end of the day. So the clock is ticking for our kids. First home run I ever hit minor baseball, uh, Dave, was in, uh, it was in Mount Pearl. So I, I remember it well. But th- that aside, and this is the last question, sure, you're clearly making the argument that it's the union that's inhibiting this and they're, they're dug in. I hear you on all of that. What can you say to the parents and to the people who use your facilities? Do you have hope that at some point this summer things will return to normal? Because if this drags on, both the union and you, you and the council are going to wear this. Do you have hope that this can be resolved before that very two-month period you talked about is done? Jim, I'll say to you, I'm very hopeful that at the end of the day we can all work together. But there's some disrespectful behavior that's occurring that's over and above normal picketing. And we're even seeing it now with our our management staff. So we need to ratchet down um, some of the rhetoric. Um, Respectful picketing on both sides is, is required here. We're having... And Ken Turner needs to be aware of this. Our female managers are being followed when they leave City Hall, and they're being filmed by members of the union and having pictures taken. And they're getting a bit nervous, and they're getting a little bit worried that that's over and above. So we've got a bunch of people from Public Works. One of the mechanics was up there the other day taking pictures of our managers. And our managers have asked 
Why are they taking the pictures? And all they'll do is close the door. So in leaving City Hall, once the manager clears the area, they should be allowed to walk through the cars in peace. Those people should not be harassed with uh, people taking pictures, making cat calls, and targeting our female managers, who, by the way, are, are, are members of the negotiating team. And, and, and frankly, until we ratchet down that emotional part and ask for a bit more respect, today they lowered the, uh, the flag at City Hall. Ken Turner was told about that two days ago, and he agreed that should never be done again. They did it again today. So Ken has, I think, got to step up and add a little bit more professionalism to the union side of this argument. Okay. I, I will leave it there. I appreciate your perspective, uh, Dave Maraker. Good to have you on. We are going to have Ken Turner, just so everybody's aware. We play it fair here at VOCM, get both perspectives. I will ask him about some of the things you've raised. Uh, Dave, when I talk to him just after uh, the uh, the 10 o'clock news, thanks for your time today. Say hi to your mom for me. Take care, Tim. Bye-bye. Okay, I will. All right, that was uh, Dave Aker, the mayor of Mount Pearl. Again, just to repeat it, Ken Turner will be on just after the 10 o'clock news, and we'll get his perspective on what's happening in Mount Pearl and also ask him about some of the things raised, some of the concerning things raised by Mayor Aker. But before that, time for a break here on VOCM News and back with more of your calls. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to Open Line. I guess we're going to rename segments of this program, Take Your Crap to Tim Day, because yesterday we talked about sewage, and don't get me wrong, I'm happy about to talk about broken sewer lines. This was in Gambo. Today we've got Overton. He's got a sewage issue in St. Anthony. Welcome, Overton, to Take Your Crap to Tim Day. Tell me what's going on. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, uh, sir, for that introduction. <laughs> I'm sorry I missed your show yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> sewage is the hot topic, and maybe... Maybe it fits the time. Anyway, tell us what's going on with you. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, forgive me. i, I got to stop laughing first. That's all right. Um, I, I went through a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to Patty, and, uh, and of course, okay. I sent him a couple of pictures. And so I won't bother to go into any type of detail except to say that there's raw sewage on the ground in front of my house. And, it comes and you are in St. Anthony. You're in St. Anthony, so people. That's okay. correct. And it doesn't come from my house. Hmm. Now, the odd part about it is, where I live, um, I've written various people, the town, uh, the Minister of uh, Municipal Affairs and Environment, who happens to be the MHA for this area, Ms. Howell. Mm -hmm. I've written the government services, which is the people who are responsible for permitting um, sewage outlets. And the funny part is, I I have a new house just recently built. And completely all around, all my neighbors, we're all connected to the town sewage system, except one. One Really? House. Yes, sir. Huh. This, this Odd. Well, um, yep, one house. So anyway, having, having, having built the house a few years ago, I've now bought a boat. So I dragged, uh, and so my boat is out in the harbor, obviously, So I, and my house is fairly close to the harbor. So I took my dinghy. I went to drag my dinghy down to the to the to the shore to, to put out to get to my boat mm-hmm. in the harbor, and here I am walking through, which I won't bother to describe anymore. <laughs> Crap! Let's call it that. Uh, yeah. There you go. And um, I'm a professional engineer, and I've spent okay. almost 50 years working around sewage and different things of like that. So I'm fairly qualified to identify it when I see it. 
and and the, the, the big green pipe sticking underground is a, is a dead giveaway. Hmm. <clears throat> the other odd part about this is, you, you mentioned to Mr. Ecker a minute ago that you struck a home run in, in Mount Pearl. Mm-hmm. If you were standing on my front step right now and struck that home run, you'd be sticking that, you'd be driving that ball <laughs> right through the window of the MHA's office. That's how close I live to her. Okay. I sent her an email uh, two days ago. She's in town. She was in town last night for some sort of a festival at the uh, at the local stadium. I sent her when I heard she was coming. I sent an email and asked her if I could meet for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Her her office being just a a stone's throw from my front door. I could pop over any time. No response. Which is similar to all the other emails that I have sent to the parties that I listed to you earlier. Yes. Municipal Affairs. I have no response from anybody. And yet, here's this green pipe spewing sewage from one house 70 meters from the MHA's office, 50 meters from my front door. And who owns that green pipe? Who do I call? <laughs> Don't say Ghostbusters. But it's <laughs> I've called, I've emailed just about everybody I can think of in, in responsible posi- positions who are responsible for this. You, could, you know who you could call Overton? Well, as Sorry. political people. You know, Overton, maybe, I, I, and you would know this as an engineer in Newfoundland and Labrador better than I would, but there must be, um, you could probably call the Department of Environment, could you not, and re- uh, report some sort of I have of done spill. that, sir. Okay, you've done that, too. I yeah. have emailed the Department, and the Department of Environment being the minister who's the MHA here. Yeah. So I have done that. I have also written um, um, civil servants that I know who are in these departments. No response. Now, here's here's what I think the problem is. Again, I only think I know it. Okay. This sewer was installed by the town. So it's the town sewer, or installed well, by the town. Not what they will admit to. Okay. By the town illegally, across Department of Transportation land. When the present minister, if not mayor, was a councillor. Ah. See the conflict? That's why the problem is not being addressed by the civil servants who are supposed to address this. And you want the problem fixed. I mean, they, I they, just they, want that pipe gone so I don't have to walk through this in order to launch my dinghy in order to get out to my boat. Yeah, and that's not an unreasonable expectation. I, but as you describe all of this, and again, you have worked in, you've worked long enough in uh, the, uh, the the construction engineering industry to know that I, I could see this is going to require Overton an interdepartmental meeting of numerous people to come up with a simple solution of removing or changing the, simple the flow. Solution, sir, is are not possible. That house to the sewer in the street, yeah, sixty feet away. Mm-hmm. In the same manner that my house is connected to a sewer, my other neighbor is connected to the sewer, my other neighbor down the road is connected to a sewer, except for this one house, 60 feet from the street. Wow. 
Well, you have given it a good airing. I guess what would help if they could get the foul odor in the air in their nostrils, maybe that will move them along. It, it is baffling to me as somebody who, as you know, has done work uh, trying to engage governments on different issues that you have not got a response on this. And it's equally it is kind of shocking because it's not that difficult a problem to potentially solve. I mean, I don't hear you threatening litigation. I don't hear you seeking remediation. You just want to get to your boat uh, without walking through a a ton of... There's no litigation that I can uh, even contemplate. It's simply a municipal issue, a matter of permitting, and a a matter of fixing a problem that everybody knows about. As an engineer, I can say to you, uh, I know very competent contractors all over this island and in this town who could correct that in a day. Yeah. Or less. Yeah. I will conclude by saying um, my condolences, much too late, of course, uh, for your late father. Thank you. I worked with your father in Goose Bay in 1967 and 1968 when we started that high, that road from Goose Bay towards Churchill Falls. It was the best two summers, I think, at, and certainly then as just a young man, that I was certainly able to have spent. And well, I, I can also say that I'll bet you I know what your dad would do if he was in my house. <laughs> I'm afraid to know. He would do a few things, Overton, but I he would get it fixed. Uh, he, most yes, certainly sir, he, he would. He would solve. Anyway, that's very kind of you. You've made Take the Crap to Tim today very interesting and very, very moving, and I hope your problem gets solved. And uh, if that, uh, that MHA, that minister, wants to call us, they're more than welcome to to give their side of the story. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for hearing it. Thanks. Sir. All right. Take care. That was uh, Overton. Made my day. That's wonderful to hear about my dad. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. Charlie, you're up next. Always enjoy talking to Charlie. Charlie wants to talk about masking at uh, public events. It's the debate that's heating up again, particularly up here in Ontario. We have our big Blues Fest event going on, and uh, a number of physicians are saying, wear a mask, even in this outdoor space. Wear a mask to CFL games. You ready to wear a mask again if that's asked of you? We'll talk to Charlie and get his perspective after the break. Welcome back to Open. Now, just before we talk to Charlie, to give context in case people are just joining the program now, Dr. Fitzgerald is going to brief the province and the media at 12 o'clock Newfoundland time. We're going to cover it uh, as best we always do here at VOCM. I think we're going to try and play the full news conference at 1230, and we'll give you the news as it starts to come out at 12 o'clock. I've been talking a little bit this morning about the return of masking. I'm by no way making reference to anything anybody in Newfoundland land and labrador has told me or anything that has been said to date i'm just referring to the discussion that has happened here in ontario uh where we are allegedly apparently according to experts in the seventh wave and medical officials here have encouraged not mandated people to wear uh masks in public outdoor settings it's not uniform among physicians but it has been coming more frequent and the doctor here dr moore the counterpart of dr fitzgerald will be giving an an update to the province of ontario later today as well so with that context i want to bring charlie in because i know people can spin all over the place if they only get a snippet of the information charlie doesn't do that but uh, charlie i think you do want to talk about masking uh welcome good to talk to you 
Good morning, Tim. I, I, I'm glad to hear you on again. I've, I've been a fan of yours ever since a few years back when I called you Tim Harper. Uh, <laughs> and, you, and you took it really well, so that was great. <laughs> well, you know what, Charlie? If I got offended by what people say, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. That usually starts with my mother, let me tell you. So when you're getting it from the home front, you, you're, you're pretty good. Anyway, go ahead, my friend. Just, just a couple of uh, uh, quick things on, on um, fishing. Uh, yep. I've used the old jigger with, with two hooks on it, and I've caught two fish uh, on occasion, uh, very yeah. rare. But I was using one hook, and I caught two fish. Can you believe that? <laughs> I've that, seen that happen. I've seen that, that happen. That happened, not on the same hook. It was one on the hook, and one was tangled up in the line about two feet above that. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat. It's never I was actually out on a boat last summer. Um, uh, the, the tour boat that Dr. Noel Brown and his family use, and Noel's a friend, of course, and his son's a good friend, and they took a bunch of us out fishing, and somebody on the boat did get two fish on one hook, so I have uh, two oh, cods on so, one feet, so I've seen and it. I, and I thought I was the only one. All right, then. And, and the last fishing story, uh, there was a couple from, from Vancouver, four people, actually. I was bringing up a few capelin there uh, last week, and they wanted to take pictures. They had never seen capelin before, right? Okay. So I couldn't resist. There was a spawning capelin among them, and because I only had enough for a meal, so I said, "I think I've got to explain capelin sex to them." <laughs> so, so I took up the spawning capelin and I put it between two or two of the male capelin, and I squeezed them, and the spawn went everywhere. They jumped back. Oh my said, God! That is a demonstration of capelin sex, and I bet you they'll uh, they'll remember that. Well, we've we've uh, we've we've gone from crap to, uh, to Caplin copulating. It's quite the day here on VOCM. All right, take us to masks, Charlie. Okay, on COVID, what I'm wondering is this: I, I'm a baseball fan, and I look at mm-hmm. things in the states uh, going on the stadiums. You cannot see one mask, mm-hmm. and I wondered if the same thing was happening in Ontario, and I, I, I figure it is. So I'm wondering if the virus is as, is as powerful as it was before, because one time everything was closed. Now we go from uh, uh, that to total uh, as if the, the COVID doesn't exist. So it must be that people are not getting hospitalized, or is it more of the, uh, the uh, vaccination? What is, what is the thing going on here? Again, a- answering you, certainly not as a scientist or an epidemiologist, but based on what I have read, heard, and seen here. So start with the masks. I was at a sporting event here on Sunday when I got back from Newfoundland, and it was at the uh, TD Play Stadium, which is where the Red Black Blacks play. Uh, I don't think I saw anybody wearing a mask. There would have been five or 6,000 people there. Um, the, the mask caution started to happen, I would say, earlier this week. So we're only at Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday. I started to hear some of the uh, medical officers of health and the local regions in and around Ottawa saying it was a good idea. But again, an issue of choice. What they have said and what I have heard. And again, we have Dr. Moore, the Ontario chief medical officer speaking this afternoon, uh, are a few things which uh, I hope answer your question. One, um, that there is a there is a seventh wave. It is this new variant of variants of 
COVID, I guess, BA4 and BA5. Again, clarity will come this afternoon. Um, They are saying that the vaccinations that people have had so far have made a significant difference in keeping down hospitalizations. That said, Charlie, and this is anecdotal, um, more people that I know than before have, have or are getting COVID, but they all seem to be managing very well through it. They're usually my sister, she won't mind me saying it, uh, my nephew and brother-in-law uh, all had it uh, a couple of weeks ago, all are fine, all had it basically for four or five days, no real major symptoms. So as to the impact, the significance, I know our emergency room numbers, again, here in this part of Ontario, the Ottawa region, the, uh, sorry, the hospitalization numbers, that is the better, the correct way of stating it, have not grown dramatically. Uh, And the last thing I'd say, and you'll remember this from the coverage of this story, the uh, wastewater studies have spiked up over the last number of days. That's the best I can tell you. Again, I would encourage people to, who are interested in this, what's happening here, to listen to Dr. Moore this afternoon uh, from Ontario and Dr. Fitzgerald uh, from our province. Okay, that's, that's, that answers uh, part of it. Uh, well, I read recently that if you get it a second and a third time, which you can, mm, which you can yeah. much more severe. Have you read that? I've not read that. I know people who have gotten it twice, and I... I haven't heard how they've described it a second time. I know that they've recovered and there haven't been dramatic, um, uh, dramatic uh, declines in their health. I've not I've not heard or seen anybody who's gotten a third time and not read anything comprehensive that I could comment on as it relates to getting the disease a third time. I can't give you more detail on it, but I know I did read it and uh, it sounded uh, a little bit ominous. But anyway, that's uh I, I, I would advise uh, p- people out in public to, to at least, uh, especially in stores and stadium places like that, to, uh, to, to put a mask on, even though it's a, it's a bloody nuisance and that, you know. But uh, it's certainly uh, uh, the number of cases have gone up dramatically, and yet people, because there's no mandate from government, they just simply are getting pretty blasé about it, you know. Well, that's true, and there's also the politics of this, right? And we know it all too well, particularly here in Ottawa with all of the protests that we have had, uh, and, and most of it misguided. That's, you know, but people have a right to protest about what they want to protest for. Be it for me to judge, Charlie, but I think there's a lot of caution, a lot of caution among political leaders to be too prescriptive over what they uh, suggest people do over the next little while because they're fearing the back. They also don't want to empower, you know, political leaders like Polyev and Maxime Bernier and others and conspiracy theorists who have distorted the vaccines and the regulations that have been brought forward. So there's a whole political powder cake here that's being managed. Again, fascinating to me, and I'm sorry to be droning on here, that we don't, I don't think the Premier of Ontario, Premier Ford, uh, nor Premier Fury, because they're just leaving Victoria, are going to be at these news conferences. They would have been before. You'll remember in the early days of COVID, through the darker days of COVID, the Premiers were front and center. They're wise enough to know what a political lightning rod uh, um, regulation and guidance have become and have stepped back from it, at least for now. Okay, one final comment. I think we should use more common sense. Uh, we don't have to be re- regulated to do the right thing. Just a quick comment on, on the January 6th hearings. 
If there's any Trump fans left in Canada, they oh have my God. watching this. The guy is a walking crime wave. And uh, if, if he's not charged and jailed for this, there is something seriously wrong with the judicial system in the States. But uh, it's amazing. It's not one smoking gun. It's, it's no. like ten smoking guns, you know? <laughs> It's a it's a barrage of howitzers firing at him. It's I I just heard some of the audio tapes from yesterday when I was driving, so I've not seen the facial expressions, but of the witness depositions of what happened at one of the meetings. I mean, it's it's staggering. It's frightening to see the juvenile behavior that was at play, the offensive, aggressive behavior, no threatening to physically <laughs> abuse people. I I mean, you would like to think that your commander in chief. Uh, the supposed commander-in-chief of the world uh, is has a better grasp of his temper, his disposition, and his responsibilities. If all of this is accurate, that is coming out of these hearings, uh, it, it confirms all of our worst fears about Donald Trump. Yeah, he's an overgrown child, uh, tantrums, and uh, totally irrational, and yet people support him. Uh, I, I, I hope to hell that this can never happen in Canada. <laughs> let's, let's, let's say it won't. All right. I'll leave it there. Got to go to news. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, Tim. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, bye. Okay, that was uh, Charlie talking about a broad discussion on where we might be going and some of the things we already know about uh, COVID and the latest variants. As I say, listen later to get the accurate information from the medical health officers. We're going to go to news now. When we come back, as promised, to give his perspective on, on the withdrawal of service in Mount Pearl, Ken Turner, the head of uh, QP 2099, will join us right after the news here on VOCM Open Line. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Okay, as we keep examining what's going on in Mount Pearl in terms of, you pick the way you want to describe it, withdrawal of services, strike was a word the mayor used, and please now to be joined uh, to get uh, his perspective and the perspective of his workers, Ken Turner, the president of QP 2099. Ken, how are you today? Well, good morning, Jim. Uh, as uh, good as can be expected under the current conditions, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and I think you would agree with Dave Aker on this. I mean, this is an emotional circumstance. It is for everybody that's involved in it. You have people that are out uh, that aren't working. You're trying to do better for them. The mayor has people that aren't getting served. You're in between. Anyway, um, I get the emotional side of it. I totally understand your perspective there. Before I ask you some very specific questions related to what the mayor said to me, can you give me your perspective of why we are here at this point now? Well, Tim, we've been in bargaining, as you know, since early March, and I know the mayor has alluded to that as well. Uh, we've gone through quite a number of proposals uh, from the city, as well as proposals that uh, we presented. Uh, now, we've already agreed to quite a number of language changes to the collective agreement, as well as several proposals from the employer, which will absolutely improve the operations of the city. Unfortunately, what the city has left outstanding is language changes that will uh, change the fundamental meaning of our collective agreement, and it will reduce our benefits, and it creates a two-tiered system for our members. So can you give a, again, I know you don't want to talk numbers. I respect that. Eventually, taxpayers will want to know the numbers, and that will come to the fore, assumedly, because you will find agreement at some point. Explain what this two-tier difference is as best you can without 
betraying what you're trying to do at the uh, at the bargaining table because people hear this and I think they look around they see different arrangements that exist in the public sector uh, with unions that serve the public sector and and see different benefit agree- agreements that have different uh, different segments different stagnation stag uh, st- uh, stages to them so in your case what does this mean well, I mean, to put it out there to the public, I think most people have a, a general understanding of what two-tiered systems are. But, I mean, two-tiered systems create inequities, Tim, in our collective agreements by providing senior employees with superior rights and benefits while uh, not providing the same rights to our junior employees. I mean, we know that others have accepted, you know, lesser and two-tiered. We know about that. I mean, it's, it's not mm-hmm. news that people don't see, obviously. Uh, but, you know, absolutely. So, you know, however... Those are we're not those locals, and you know we've been locked out on several occasions to achieve our collective agreement, and uh, we are not prepared to have lesser benefits for new employees. Like we believe our young people deserve the same rights and benefits and dignity of all workers, and that's what two-tiered systems are about. They're 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 not good for for young workers. So, again, just driving down on this, you're using the word rights, and not everybody, when they look at contract negotiations, look at compensation that's provided in the agreement as a right. It is something, as you're determining, that is negotiated. When you mean rights, what are you wanting your younger workers to have a right to that they would not get that the senior workers do? Well, I mean, obviously, there's different types of benefits that uh, that senior employees are, are, are kind of avail of. I mean, uh, depending on your 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 time within the city, you know, there's there's obviously you've got your your sick benefits, which are negotiated. You've got but you've got wages. So, uh, um, you not wages. Um, we'll get to wages, but the uh, our holidays and stuff like that, like vacation and things like that, like they're that's given over a certain time. Not that any of that is in this round of bargaining right now uh, but it's it's the type of things that over time um, the, this union has achieved through fair and collective bargaining and now the city wants to come back and try to walk back on a lot of those benefits and uh, we don't see that as, as uh, fair uh, or acceptable. And and how many people are we talking about in the younger worker category, category to give it kind of a human face? Is it 100 employees? Is it 200 employees? Is it 50 employees? How many people here are, are, are you feeling are being disrespected by not having their rights recognized, to use your language? Well, I mean, as you know, Tim, we have a number of young people that come through our system, uh, no matter where you work, whether it's the city of Mount Pearl or or any other municipality or any other private industry, like young workers are out there coming to work. We here in Mount Pearl have, you know, probably half our workforce or even maybe even better than that are are a lot of younger employees. I mean, the the number of young employees that we have up in uh, our recreation facilities uh, is is quite significant. You know, probably half our membership uh, for sure. So, you know, it does affect a large number of our of our bargaining unit. These types of uh, these types of this type of language. Is this gonna? What's the cost of doing this and the cost of not doing this in terms of the taxpayers' perspective? You know, when it comes to the taxpayers, the cost here right now, as far as we can see, is the disruption to services. I mean, we know what we're coming out of here right now, and 
and so does the city. Uh, you know, uh, Dave has, has uh, said a lot of things around the type of rhetoric that's gone on, and he's, he's, he's really honed in on that. And, you know, this creates a divide amongst the workers uh, regards to the, 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 the city and our residents, and, and that's not what we're after. You know, Dave made comments of some of the things that went on, like they got a, you know, we've got a lot of parents out there that are really angry, and he, he himself has kids who came up to the Mount Pearl soccer, you know, he's he's called this uh, harassment, and, uh, you know, uh, you know we've, we've witnessed comments on social media where city managers have weighed in on the current situation, you know, which add fuel to the fire, and the comments are deleted. Any comments such as this are, you know, they're inflammatory, and they only exasperate the situation. Like our kids, parents, you know, visitors, residents, they're not at risk. And we take exception to these types of statements. Uh, you know, this is the type of, of uh, situation where relationships are damaged. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that is the ultimate cost. With regards to, to bargaining, I mean, uh, as I said, we've already agreed to a number of, of changes. I mean, our last offer uh, removed proposals. I mean, the city did come with an offer. Uh, and we countered with removed proposals and, and reduced compensation, which actually brought us closer. And, and we thought we were headed somewhere, but uh, the city left the table after our, our last offer was presented. And, you know, we met with the conciliator last week on Friday to see if the city was, you know, Dave says they're willing to meet and ready to come back to the table. We met with the conciliator last week, Friday, uh, late, and there was nothing. And uh, I called on Monday, again late on Monday, and uh, again nothing, and only for us to get a call yesterday evening at uh, 5 o'clock from the conciliator to say that, uh, you know, they were relaying some bad news that the city was not prepared to return to the table. So we're hearing uh, Mayor Aker out there telling the public that they're ready to bargain, they're ready to get back to the table, and the conciliator is calling me as late as 5 o'clock yesterday saying the city is not prepared to return to the table. So. What type of messaging are we trying to get out here? And, you know, I've heard the things that he said uh, with respect to, um, you know, the, the, the picketers and the things that have happened on the line. Like, I'm aware of what happened over the weekend, and I'm aware of police presence and these types of things. But, you know, our residents, uh, we're just asking for them to be patient. You know, there's going to be some short delays. We're asking for everybody's patience here, and we're asking residents to contact council and, and get us back to the table. Two, two, two specific issues, um, um, incidents. Sorry that he raised. Um, can to get your comment on? He, uh, Dave, alleged that there was a female manager that was filmed as she was leaving uh, the city premises by union employees, and she felt intimidated. And if that is accurate, I can understand why she would. Second one, he argued, uh, made the point by uh, making the case for um, a there was someone at the baseball field the baseball coach went up to one of the fields and he was uh, discouraged from going on he felt unsafe he's argued that this is disrespectful picketing and harassment care to comment on both of those specific incidents and the the overall charge and you've touched on a little bit but i want to drive down on this notion of disrespectful picketing and outright harassment of people 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have no problem to comment on that, Tim. I mean, tensions are going to be high, obviously, and we're, we're not at every every location. But with respect to uh, female managers being followed and and videoed uh, when they when they were leaving the premises, that's the first that we've heard of that was here on open line. That that has not gotten back to us, um, and the city does have security hired, uh, which are filming uh, the city premises. I mean pretty much all the time so if uh if there were female managers being harassed or, or followed or, or videoed uh, i mean if they would come to us uh, we would have our reps and myself would deal with that uh, accordingly we would deal with that right away um with respect so you're to, saying this didn't happen as far as you know well as far as well i mean i can't say that it didn't happen i mean okay I, 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 you're not aware of it I'm not aware of it, absolutely. I mean, I'm not in every location, and I mean, tensions are high. You've got uh, managers out doing the work at the bargaining unit, they're coming up to picket lines. I mean, I'm, things are being said, or who knows? I mean, uh, and that's on both sides. I mean, like I said, we've seen comments on social media from managers that have since been deleted. You know, adding fuel to this fire, and this needs to stop. Like, we need to get back to the table. Um, but we were not aware, have not been made aware of any of these allegations from the mayor here this morning. I mean, if they were coming to us, you know, I heard him talk about the um, the lowering of the flag. The flag, yeah. Okay? Now, absolutely, uh, we heard about that on uh, for City Hall a couple of days ago, and we had thought we'd address that situation. But I can tell you, Tim, uh, with a uh, hand over heart, I'm a retired member of the Armed Forces. And I won't stand for it, and I won't have it, and I will investigate into that today to find out if that happened today. I mean, I've seen pictures. People sent me pictures of City Hall, and I don't see the flags lowered. So I don't know where exactly that originated from or what the mayor was talking about or if he was referring to the one from a few days ago. But I will absolutely look into that and, and make sure that that's taken care of. The uh, folks, listen, you know, um, I'm not sure of some of the things that may have gone on on the line with, with uh, uh, residents and, and, and uh, people at the sports fields. The tensions down there obviously are going to be high. We've shut down, like, we've pulled our services back from all of these facilities, which is essentially shut down recreation within the city of Mount Pearl, and people are going to be upset. Our members are upset. Our members are family members. They are, they work here in the city. They play here in the city. They take pride in the work that they do. Their children are not in these programs either. These decisions were not taken lightly. The city knew full well back when we were coming out of bargaining that these situations could happen. I can assure you that our residents and their children are absolutely safe. What I would ask is if they could respect the picket lines and get back to the city. That would be a, a better situation. But they will... They can expect delays. I mean, they should expect delays, and I'm hoping that they will be patient. But they are not in any danger or whatsoever. It's actually, uh, you know, we take exception to these statements. Our members are quite upset to hear our mayor out talking about his workforce in this manner. Uh, and I assume you would condone if you discovered that these were accurate, the behavior of any uh, any of these alleged behaviors, if they were accurate. Absolutely. I mean, all the city has to do is come to us, I mean, uh, and, and, and show us these things or, or and, and we'll deal with them internally. And, you know, we have uh, reps here who won't put up with that type of stuff. And, you know, we'll deal with it. 
And, okay. you know, for, for Dave to bring this out on the open line and out in the media, in the newspapers, and, and to talk about all this stuff so openly, and so it, it all it does is inflame the situation. It upsets his own workers, and we don't get an opportunity to deal with it. it quite frankly, it just seems like a way to, to uh, make... Uh, the union and the workers look bad for actually being out on strike and trying to protect their collective agreement. All right. Last question. I need a a short answer to this, Ken, because we're up against time here. And it's the same question I asked Dave is, do you, and and I hear the tensions and emotions from both of you, do you think this can get resolved before the end of the summer? So those families and parents and others that uh, particularly want to avail of the great sports facilities at Mount Pearl can go back to enjoying that. Can this get done by, by the time the summer is up? I absolutely believe it can get done, Tim. Um, like I said, as of late yesterday, the city wasn't prepared to come back to the table, according to the conciliator. The city needs to come back to the table. They know what our issues are, what we've agreed to. They know what they need to remove, that, that, that this membership's not going to accept. They just need to come back, get some of these things off the table that we can't agree to. Uh, they're, non, they're non-starters. And uh, let's get our kids back, and let's get our people working, and let's get Mount Pearl back to the way it needs to be again uh, and so that we can be that example to all the other municipalities out there to say look you want this is the place that you want to come to anyway I'm I, I'm uh, I am looking forward to getting back to work and I believe that we can make that happen we just need to get back to the table and I would implore the city to actually do that all right, got to leave it there, Ken. I appreciate your time. I appreciate Dave Aker's time. People have heard both of you speak. Anybody wants to call in and comment, wade through all of this. Uh, I think just as a, c- a citizen and somebody who loves your sports facilities at Mount Pearl and appreciates your community, I hope this can be resolved sooner rather than later. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Tim, and uh, have a good day. Okay, that was Ken Turner, the uh, head of local QP 2099, uh, the uh, the union in Mount Pearl that is currently has not providing service or is on strike. Having trouble with words today, Tim. Not good for an open line show. All right, time for a break here on VOCM Open Line. I have a caller on the line who wants to talk about the Labrador Inquiry. Hopefully I'll be able to speak properly when that caller and I speak shortly here after the break. Join Brian. Brian Medor, weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Just before I go to Duncan D, the inquiry that the anonymous caller was speaking about, just so people are aware, was the, is the inquiry that was launched in April by the provincial government, and it's the inquiry into the treatment experiences and outcomes of Inu uh, in the child protection system. That uh, was something we talked about with uh, Simeon Tekapish yesterday. Happy to talk further about it if uh, others want to discuss this uh, important review of what happened and didn't happen. Now, speaking of what happened and didn't happen, well, if you're trying to travel these days, it's probably not happening the way you want. And I... uh, contacted this gentleman who I've known for a long time, who's become a very uh, known public voice over the last few weeks on the state of air travel in Canada and globally. That gentleman is the former chief operating officer of Air Canada, Duncan D., who joins us from New Brunswick today. Duncan, how are you? I'm doing great, Tim. Thanks for having me. 
Well, you you would be one of the few Canadians who are doing great based on everything that's happening these days, and you're clearly not in an airport today. Duncan, you, you know the Canadian airline system. You know the global airline system well. You know a number of the transportation systems in this country well. You were once part of a group that studied them uh, extensively just to situate you in terms of the listeners and your experience. Simple question, but not a simple answer, perhaps. What is wrong now with Canadian and global air travel? Well, Tim, that is definitely a simple question without a simple answer. And I would say, speaking globally, um, you're facing a situation where there was a huge amount of pent-up demand um, with airlines um, all over the world trying very hard to meet that demand by adding capacity and then realizing um, through that um, situation that there were shortages in many of the services that they rely upon uh, to maintain those schedules and operate those flights. Uh, Take a look at the UK as an example where Heathrow recently capped the number of travellers departing from that airport to 100,000 travellers per day. Um, That situation was already very complicated, but when you scratch below the surface, a number of airlines, airline analysts, experts have come out and basically said that one of the key reasons behind the shortages at Heathrow has been Brexit. Uh, They lost a significant number of European workers that were um, in the UK working at airports, doing things that people don't really see. The folks that are uh, staffing, um, they call it below the wing. So folks Mm -hmm. who work in the baggage rooms, folks who uh, are responsible for marshalling aircraft in and out of gates. You know, it was only after Brexit that they realized wait a moment, you know, many of these uh, workers were in fact from Europe and suddenly they're no longer here. So there's a very unique situation um, that's taking place in um, in the UK. There are several other examples uh, recently where we've seen huge bottlenecks. Um, for example, Paris, Charles de Gaulle, where they had several days of strikes from the 30th of June to the 3rd of July. Um, you had similar uh, situations um, involving labor strife in Portugal uh, and in other locations in Europe. The situation in Canada is somewhat different, though. Uh, What we've seen in Canada is really now over three months of delays, and we're seeing the the effects of the cumulative, the cumulative effects of those delays um, hitting Canada when it hurts the most, which is the summer peak when Canadians want to travel. And is there one particular organization, person, that Canadians can direct their angst at? Or is the blame, as you are alluding to, particularly in Europe, able to be shared by many? So airlines, CATSA, the Minister of Transport, airport authorities. uh, Because I feel for your former colleagues who are at the front end of greeting people who are trying to fly, being told that they can't fly after multiple messages. How is the blame divvied and where do the solutions come from, Duncan? So 
Well, let me start by say, uh, echoing exactly what you said, and I certainly feel for my former colleagues at Air Canada, but also at WestJet. Um, for the airlines, the summer peak in Canada is like the Super Bowl. It's not like the Stanley Cup series. We don't have several games mm-hmm. to prove ourselves in a series. It, this is the one game that matters, which is the summer peak, which is when people travel. I mean, Newfoundlanders know that more than anybody else in the country. It's a time of year when families and friends come back to Newfoundland and Labrador and they come in, um, uh, spend time um, coming home. And so it's a time of year that is exceedingly important, particularly in Canada versus many other parts of the world where travel isn't as seasonal. Um, So, you know, in terms of who is responsible, let me just... um, share some numbers here. Air Canada announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that it retained 97% of its pre-pandemic workforce to operate 80% of its pre-pandemic schedule. So what that basically means is they had more workers operating fewer flights than they did before the pandemic. And why did they do that? I think they did that primarily because they felt that there would be bottlenecks based on what they saw in places like Europe, um, in the United States and elsewhere. In addition to that, most recently, they cancelled 9,500 flights, and certainly I'm I'm very sure that uh, we'll have some listeners who were affected by those cancellations. Mm -hmm. Those cancellations were not an easy decision. And when airlines make those cancellations in the summer, they know that they're affecting thousands upon thousands of uh, consumers, customers, travelers who have spent their hard-earned money buying these tickets. So where does the responsibility lie? The issue in Canada started around early April. My personal experience with it started on the 2nd of April when Mm -hmm. alarm bells started to ring in my own mind that this was not a situation that was normal. In April, on April 2nd, Saturday morning, Toronto, 7 a.m. at Pearson Airport, I was in the middle of a three-hour lineup at security. Tim, I mean, you know, somebody who travels regularly like you do, you know that April is not a time of the year when yeah, it should happen. Be, right. You don't have flights uh, that are as packed as they are in the summer, so you don't have huge lineups uh, in April. So as soon as I saw that line, I started asking a bunch of questions, and it became clear that we had some real structural problems that we are facing as a country in terms of delivering basic federal services. That was my first experience with it. But now I'm sure listeners who have been watching the news have seen that this is something which folks applying for a passport in the larger centers have encountered. Uh, And we've also seen this now manifest itself in the customs hall, where in Toronto, for example, starting in late April into May, into June, and now into July, aircraft are being parked off the building, off the gates, just to wait in line before travelers can be accepted in the customs hall because the the crowds are just so big. And so if I were to assign blame, number one, airlines need to take care of their customers always under any circumstances without compromise. So clearly airlines have to be responsible for taking care of the folks who spent their hard-earned money buying those plane tickets. At the same time though, Airlines rely on third-party services, in this case, government services, to keep the planes going. And this is where the government seems to have completely dropped the ball in terms of anticipating the return of travel, equipping itself with the amount 
the the number of workers that it required to to process the return of travel and to even meet its pre-pandemic service standards. I mean, Canada was never great in terms of uh, pre-board screening, so airport security was not something Mm -hmm. Canada ever did very well in. But at least before the pandemic, lineups weren't three hours long. But it seems like, you know, these days, the only solution to the three-hour long lineups we've seen at the airports is asking travelers to show up three or four hours before their flights. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so I mean, we've, we're basically facing a situation now where um, governments, in particular the federal government, seems to have dropped the ball in terms of trying to prepare itself for the return of travel. Two quick questions, and we've got about a minute and a half, Duncan. Uh, any signs you see that this is going to get resolved? There will be some improvement of travel during the summer peak, or may we just as well assume if you don't have to travel, you shouldn't? Well, the first thing I have to say is when an airline like Air Canada cancels 9,500 flights in July and August, that basically means there are going to be fewer flights to operate during the peak times of the day. So that should remove some of the pressure on the uh, customs uh, services at the airports and security services at the airport. So the the heavy lifting is being done by the airlines right now by simply removing the number of flights that are being operated. So should we see some improvements as a result of that? I think so. It's not going to be dramatic improvements, but we should see fewer delays, fewer cancellations, especially into um, airports like Toronto and Montreal, where the bulk of the cancellations are. So those proactive cancellations by um, the airlines, both Air Canada and WestJet, should help. But unless the government does something different in terms of what they're doing from a customs perspective and a security perspective, I'm afraid, Tim, we're probably going to see these uh, troubles continue until sometime after Labor Day. Last question. I need it in about 30 seconds, but you're good at delivering on this one. If you're going to travel, what are your, what's your best advice on how you cope and how you prepare? Look, these days, um, if you're traveling out of Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver, show up at the airport at least three hours before your flight. The airport authorities are advising that. If you're connecting out of any of those airports, make sure that the connecting time between the flights is longer than you normally would. So normally the airlines allow about an hour. Um, so give yourself two, maybe three hours between your connecting flights just to give yourself that better chance of making the connection. And thirdly, if you're traveling for a special reason, a wedding, a cruise, something like that, give yourself an extra 24 hours. So arrive at the port where your cruise is departing from the day before as opposed to the, uh, as opposed to the morning of the departure of the ship. And then finally, If you can, try not to check any bags. These days, one of the biggest troubles at the airports is bags going missing and being delayed. And so save yourself the hassle. Try to to pack light and do it all in a carry-on bag. Thanks, Duncan. appreciate your time today. That was Duncan D., uh, former Chief Operating Officer of Air Canada. Great to have you, Duncan. All right, time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Back with more of your calls after this.
Well, welcome back. We're changing gears entirely, uh, although it f- probably connects to flying because, you know what, flying, the food's not always the best. I guess that depends where you where you sit. Remember that senator years ago said, nothing to business class, broken crackers, and just camembert cheese. Well, now we're going to talk about prolonged fasting. We have a caller on. Caller, welcome on. What do you want to say about, uh, about fasting and its uh, benefits or challenges? Hi, well, good morning, sir. And first of all, thank you for taking my call. No problem. uh, I just want to speak briefly about this. And and part of the reason I wanted to speak about it is because um, there seem to be quite a number of viruses and Mm -hmm. uh, things going on through the city right now. And uh, quite often people are unsure how to sort of manage these things themselves. And I, I, I was certainly new to this. Uh, but uh, one, one an extraordinary tool to, to have is, um, or to use, is uh, fasting. You may perhaps starting off with intermittent fasting and then prolonged mm-hmm. fasting. And I'll detail exactly what I mean by those. Uh, most people are probably familiar with intermittent fasting being uh, essentially having an 18 or so window of no eating at all and then having... Uh, let's say a six-hour window where you will eat. So perhaps having like your first meal at two in the day. Yeah. And uh, so basically, like really pushing forward the, the time of your first meal. And the, the whole the, the idea behind it, um, especially if you're doing exercise or you're, um, uh, you know, if you're doing aerobic exercise or, or weightlifting, <laughs> it has helped stimulate growth hormone. It, can, it has a whole bunch. It has an abundance of uh, benefits. When you get into the prolonged fasting, and we're talking about fasting for, say, 24, 48, 72 hours or even longer, your body begins to generate uh, ketones. Uh, in addition to that, it begins to produce a whole variety of um, uh, hormones in your body that have very strong antiviral properties that, uh, and, and can be especially effective. And uh, it's, of course, a very important to... to Drink a, a lot of water. Water, so extremely yeah. well hydrated. Very you know, water is extremely important. Black coffee. Uh, there is something called MCT oil, which is usually extracted from. I think, actually, I think it's almost always extracted from coconut. Uh, that you can take with your black coffee, or with even just water, or even just take it by itself. That will help you when you're fasting. And actually, will help you go into ketosis. Ketotonic, yeah, ketosis. That's right. Yeah. Yes, precisely. And and it. It doesn't really cheat on the fast, but it will, it will get you into ketosis faster. And, and like I said, the, key, the, the ketones themselves are, are very heavily antiviral. There seems to be like a, quite often there seems to be a misconception that when you're when you're sick or someone that you need to sort of load up on you know various foods and get your you know, your blood sugars high. But the, the, the reality is that when or where the science seems to indicate that when your glycogen stores in your muscles get very low. Um, and to get that reaction whereby your body starts going into essentially survival mode. And uh, it, it actually has a very strong uh, uh, response on your uh, on your immune system. Now, I would, uh, of course, say that someone should consult with their doctor before they do this. Yes. Like if someone is type 2 diabetic or so on, I mean, I'm not a doctor by any stretch. Or I, I'm sorry, I might be even sort of uh, uh, butchering some of the signs there, but uh, true, truth about it, it's been an extraordinary uh, transformation. I did just personally speaking at this time, well, I, back in March of last year, uh, I had just started running again and I was integrating intermittent mm-hmm. fasting and I, was, I, I weighed at approximately 260 pounds or so. 
And now today, combination of running and doing that, I'm approximately 174 horsepower. Good for you. And have you kept the weight off? You've kept the weight off? Yes, I, I have, yeah. So, I mean, I, I've, Good, I've lost about 90 pounds. Uh, and, and uh, I mean... Uh, a lot of people might think that's hard to believe, but it, but it really is true. Uh, and, and so, but the, the thing is that all the people can do is too. The people might think, well, I couldn't possibly do this. Uh, you you really can if you if you if you try it. I guarantee you that you will be successful with it, uh, and, and you are diligent with it. And even if it means you just start off with brisk walking. Uh, yeah, you, you, like anything. Look, I think you said you, this method has worked for you. I know people who do both intermittent and long-term fasting. Uh, they believe it works. They've done, as you clearly have done, some research. They've talked to their physicians. I think the key point you make there, this works for you. Uh, do the research. Most importantly, talk to your physician. Talk to the people who are giving you advice on your health and wellness who are professionals. Just don't go out and do it. But, hey, I, I welcome your perspective on it. I know there's some new studies that, again, but that this happens with every dietary regime that are now challenging the benefits of long-term fasting, but uh, that is to be expected. If that's helpful, people should look at all of that. I can give you about 30 seconds before uh, before I have to go to news. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I would just close with, with agreeing with you that those are the consult with your doctor because there, there are a lot of individual differences with this. And uh, c- certainly speaking with one's physician is the most prudent uh, option there. Uh, but I, if anyone's interested, uh, they have lots, lots of YouTube videos on it and such. But uh, thank you. Yeah, very there's much. there's a lot of there's a lot of exactly there's a lot of accessible stuff that's out there, and, and make sure again, uh, look at uh, look at the right stuff because there's some that isn't great out there. Thank you for the call. Appreciate the insight, and good on you, man. Ninety pounds, damn impressive. You keep staying well. Yeah, thank you very much. Same to you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Time for the news here at VOCM's open line. Then back with more of your calls after that. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. All right. Well, earlier in the program, we had uh, Mayor Akers, uh, Mayor Aker, I should say, on about uh, the state of affairs in Mount Pearl with the reduction of services or the withdrawal of services, the strike. Again, pick your pick your poison. And we had uh, Ken Turner, the union leader, on. Now we've got James, who was listening and wants to talk about what's going on in Mount Pearl. James, how are you this morning? I'm doing wonderful, Tim. And how are you? I I am okay. What's your take on what you're hearing from all the players involved in this drama? Well, I thank you for taking my call, first of all, and you always have a great show. Um, I really uh, don't have any side to take with this, and I don't uh, have a whole lot of uh, uh, influence by any side because I'm just an innocent bystander, if you want to say it that way. Are you a Mount Pearl uh, resident, just out of curiosity? No, I'll be very okay. sincere to say I live out in CBS, and... Okay. Um, I just, you know, been listening to both sides of it, and I think that a lot of times, you know, um, when it comes to the union or an employer, they don't realize that they're putting other people out, whether it be kids, parents, you know, and it's a whole lot of people in that community. I work with Eastern Health, let's just say, for over 30 years, and I noticed that over the years, I'm retired now, and they brought in a two-tier system, and guess what? It didn't work well, although they said it worked well. You had a lot of people who got disgruntled amongst the workers. You had an employer who kind of um, forced little things over the years upon people. And that sounds great, you know, at the time. But over a long time, a long effects is that people are put out over it. 
So you, everybody's thrown around two-tier, and I think, as Ken said, people generally understand what it means. But in the case you're referencing, where were the differences? Were they in pension benefits? Were they in holiday benefits? Pardon? You were right on the money. Uh, two of the key ones that you can, you can okay. forget all the other little things that happen. But when it comes to your pension, if you got if you got an employee who works with you, mm-hmm. who gets to retire after 25 years, what they call a hair plan back in the day, and then you got to work at 38 years, there's something wrong with that system. Now that that didn't happen to everybody. Okay, I'm going back. I'm going back a long time. Another benefit was your sick leave. So somebody comes in new who gets half the amount of sick leave, let's just say, that you're getting. Mm-hmm. It kind of is not right. If you if you were working with your excuse me with your employer right now today, and somebody new comes in out the street who gets half the amount of sick leave or annual leave that you get, uh, it's a little uh, you know right from the start that person says why. So I think personally, if the two parties decided to work it out. And with a strike, I don't think anybody wins. And I think what they need to do is resolve their issues. A two-tier system doesn't work. And that's my opinion. And what, ha- what happened when you were dealing with what, what, what happened between employees when, when you saw it at Eastern Health? Was it a resentment between employees as well, or did the resentment focus solely on the employers? Well, it was a little of both. If you if you think about the whole idea that um, after you work there, like I'll use myself as an example. So I worked there for over 30 years, and I got all these benefits. And after you put in a certain amount of time, you get more benefits when I'm talking about annual leave. But the employee that comes in off the street, God love them, they don't get none of them benefits until they work for like 10 years or more. Then as time goes on, they build up a little bit more as they go. But, you know, at at the beginning of it, you got disgruntled employees because they're wondering why they don't get the exact same equal rights as you. Yeah. And you use the word rights, too. This is the word that's fascinating to me because I think we all use the word right for a lot of things these, these days. But I understand why um, why union leaders use the word to right. Do you have I mean, when you say rights, do you think you have a, a are you talking about a right to a quality of the same benefit as your coworker? Is that the way you're framing it? Well, I guess when it comes to your rights, uh, you want to be treated fair and equal, just like anybody else, don't, don't you? Yeah. Kind of I mean, there's legal definition. The reason I'm being so nitpicky about this and not to drive people nuts is there's certain legal definitions of rights, too, that don't necessarily flow the way that people would want them to flow in labor law. I mean, you have a right to work and the like, but when you're negotiating contracts and you throw in the word rights, they, they, they may not apply. The only reason that's important to understand is to, to, to cut through some of the public arguments about why people should get what they should or why people uh, are not getting what they should. So that's why I raise that. Anyway, you want to see these people all back to work. Do you think you've heard the interviews this morning, James? Do you sense that there's any urgency to get this done uh, there's certainly a lot of anxiety do you think it's going to happen anytime soon well, well to be sincere with you i think that by working it out you know nobody wins the employer won't win or the union if they keep having a big debate and it drags out for a long time but if they can come to a, a good resolution for both sides that works for everybody 
that's the key to it. And then you know what? Everybody goes back to work and other employees will look at each other. Benefits are the same. People will be happier. But if they don't, you're going to get a, you're going to just get disgruntled workers and morale will get really low. So um, me personally, I don't have no benefit to what happens there. I'm, yeah. I'm an outsider looking in, if you want to say it that way. But I think that for everybody, whether it's kids in the community, parents, the employer itself, and the union, coming out on top with a, with a, a mutual agreement is key. And that's, that's really where I'm to with it. Okay. Just trying to kind of be one of those guys who steps aside and says, look, you know, get along and uh, that's life in general. Get along and things will be better. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> good advice on a lot of fronts these days. Thanks, James, yes. for your call. You have a great day. All right, thank you. That was James. You know what, Dave? We're going to take a slightly early break. And when we come back, we've got a Ukrainian doctor who has come to Newfoundland and Labrador is having issues getting set up in the province. We'll talk to Dr. Marina Sagorsky uh, when we come back here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back. Now, as mentioned, we're going to go talk to Dr. Marina Sagorska, uh, who is a Ukrainian doctor having some issues getting set up in the province. Dr. Sagorska. Uh, hello, Tim. Uh, I'm from Ukraine. I'm a general practitioner. I have experience like general practitioner from eight years. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, and I came to Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a great place with a beautiful people. I really want to help her, but I can't be like a doctor here. I must have a lot of time to be a doctor here. It's a problem, actually. So it, it, it's the issue of getting your credentials recognized in Newfoundland and Labrador, is it? Yes, yes. And what so so people understand because I, I think this is important because this has been a problem in Canada, not just Newfoundland and Labrador for a while that you can be a trained medical professional, as you say, with eight years experience from elsewhere. But you come into Canada and then you have to get credited or accredited uh, again. So tell us the process of what you've been told about accreditation and what, if you were to get accredited, how long that would take. It's a very long process. It can take uh, two or five years. Two or five years. Yes. It's very long. I know that a lot of people don't have a family doctor here and they need help and I really want to help them. Uh, so I think uh, we must have some clear plan and help of government, something like this. Yeah, because it, it's been, I, I don't know the details in our neighboring province of Nova Scotia, but they've looked to make accreditation more uh, done more quickly. So what, what, what do they ask you for that takes two to five years to get done? Uh, I must uh, uh, evaluation. Uh, I must do evaluation of my uh, documents of my diploma, and it takes a lot of time. I must study again, uh, but I have a big experience. I know that in Canada maybe some other uh, doctors must to do, uh, but uh, I hope that my experience not so bad, really. Uh, and my diploma from Ukraine uh, here is good in Canada. Uh, I'm sorry for my English. I will try <laughs> to learn it better. Uh, but you're doing you're doing fa- you're you're doing you're doing fantastic with your English. Uh, what? <laughs> so you. where just 
because again, people will think, oh, that doctor came from elsewhere and maybe she wasn't trained to the same degree. Tell us about the training you went through number of years to get your your uh, your medical doctor designation from the Ukraine. How, what was your training like? Are you there, doctor? Yes, yes, I'm here. Uh can you repeat, please? Uh, how you're training? Your training in the in in the Ukraine. So again, one of the issues that people will raise is, oh, this doctor has not been trained in our country. Maybe they don't have as much experience. You, as you okay. said, you have eight years practicing. Tell us about how you train to be a doctor in the Ukraine. Uh, in Ukraine, we study in the university from six years. Then okay. we have internship from two years, and then we start our work. And in work, I was eight years like general practitioner and like family doctor. And in the, and you trained extensively in the Ukraine. Yes. 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 Okay. So what I brought you? Work, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was to work with born children, uh, diagnose, uh, medicine, everything. Uh, our family practitioners do everything, and uh, we have a lot of patients uh, like newborn children and adults and others, so we can help a lot of people, really. And I have a lot of my colleagues uh, which want to come to Canada because of the war in Ukraine, but they can't do it because they don't know how long time it will take and what we must do here because everyone has a family, have a children, and we must work. Yeah, in Nova Scotia, and just, again, the reference example I used earlier, the government of Nova Scotia has approved a, a program to test for and train family physicians in an effort to make a dent in the doctor shortage. There's nothing like that in Newfoundland and Labrador that you've encountered, correct? Uh, correct, because uh, I really like this place. I think this place needs doctors, and I want to be here, because a lot of people help me. Uh, now, uh, David Baldwin helped me and my family, and I want to help them, too, because they need a doctor. And uh, Nova Scotia is a very good problem, uh, program, uh, but I think we need this program here. So what made you, how, how did you come to Newfoundland? Did you come recently and through the immigration uh, recruitment efforts that the government of Newfoundland began, had, uh, has invested in overseas? What brought you here? How did you pick Newfoundland? And did you know uh, that in Newfoundland and Labrador it would take you longer to get accredited? Uh, I was learning about this place in internet actually. Uh, when okay. we take a visa, uh, we was uh, sent a message from some people from Newfoundland and Labrador, and they will was speak with us, tell everything, and help us to come here. And when was that? It was 14 June. We are here okay. from three weeks. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and and you want and and you want to work. If you can't, if you if the process doesn't change and you can't pursue medicine, what will you look to do? And will you stay in Newfoundland and Labrador? Uh, you know, I really want to be a doctor. It's all my life. It's all what I can do, and I know what how it to do. So I will must to go in some other place where I can be a doctor. But I don't want to do this really. 
And when you when you went through your your visa process, um, did they not ask in any detail about your professional qualifications? Did they not give you any insight into the challenges you might might encounter? Because I think that will be interesting for people to understand. Because we're bringing skilled people, uh, many of your your fellow uh, country people here to Canada. I, I know a friend of mine uh, here in Ottawa has has, uh, has housed a, a Ukrainian engineer and his family, and he too has a credentialing issue. But when you deal with Canadian immigration, when you go to get your visa, do they ask and do they tell about the challenges you may have? Uh, yes, they uh I asked them uh, what I must do to be a doctor. Uh, everyone said that they don't know because they don't have uh, so many signs about this. And uh, I will must do this in place when I will come here. And uh, all of them said that in New Poland and Labrador, not enough doctors and they need me. <laughs> uh, so actually, I hope that I can find the work here and help everyone who needs this. Well, I appreciate you calling. I have one last question for you. If you've listened to the show or you've been here for three weeks, you know, obviously, about our physician shortages and most acutely in our remote and rural communities. Are you hell-bent and determined to stay in, you know, in a metro area like St. John's? Or are you, would you, if you got your credentials tomorrow or very soon, be open to working in, uh, in, in on other communities on the island of Newfoundland or in Labrador that need doctors? Uh, outside, yes. Okay. And it sounds like you got a very busy family there, Dr. Gorska. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have actually a big family. <laughs> well, you know, we're... we're, I we're have three kids and okay. a lot of us. And, and how has the experience been, just apart from the challenge you're having getting credentialed, how has it been coming to Newfoundland? Have you been welcomed? Are you getting community support apart from the challenges you're having becoming recognized and credentialized? Uh, yes, sure. I have a big help from ANC. I have a big help from David Baldwin and Michael Collin. Uh, so I really uh, have a big help from these people, and I um, know a lot of people from Newfoundland who talk with me on the street, uh, on the parks, and they're really very good person and such a beautiful people who want to help me. Uh, and that's why I try to stay here and help them. So I ask some help that I can do this. And I, I do have one more question. What is, are you talking to family at home in the Ukraine? I mean, when you look at what's happening at home, how do you feel? It must still be heartbreaking for you, is it? It's, uh, I, I don't know how it to say. Uh, really, my heart is broken. Every day I heard a lot of not good information. My father is military. He is on a war. He stays there, and uh, it's very difficult. A lot of my friends stay there, and every day I heard, like, some bombs crash in my city. Oh, my in, goodness. Uh, in my country, and it's terrible, actually. Thank you, well, Jeff. It's yeah, really well, and I, I'm, I'm yes, I, I was going to say I'm sorry that your your family is going through this. I commend you and and and, the, and, and all of you for coming over. Your 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 courage is impressive, and let's see if we can find a way in Newfoundland and Labrador to get you practicing medicine sooner rather than later. Doctor Sigorska, thank you for the call today.
Thank you very much, Tim. All right. Good to speak with you. So there you have it. I mean, this is a challenge. Many professionals coming over from uh, from Europe or, or elsewhere have when they are credentialed. This is something that's been a, a consistent problem. Uh, it is not new. In Nova Scotia, just to, uh, un- to give you some context there, and this was 2019, I believe, the government of Nova Scotia approved a long-awaited program to test foreign-trained family physician, physicians like Dr. Sigorska in, a, in an effort to reduce the doctor shortage um, if it went on to say the announcement said it was a way for family doctors trained in, in jurisdictions that are not recognized by the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Nova Scotia to prove that they can meet Canadian medical standards and work in the province um, this is meant to have been f- facilitated faster training in Nova Scotia the program started um, early 2019 uh, looking for the timelines of it but I know it has been lauded as a program some doctors assess for three months and if they uh, they pass, uh, they uh, they can receive a conditional license to work in underservice areas. Uh, specifically, this is what it said. Family doctors trained internationally will be assessed for three months. If they pass, they'll receive a conditional license to work in underserviced areas. In Nova Scotia, those underserviced areas basically included the whole province, Halifax, Dartmouth, Cape Breton, Annapolis Valley, and northern Nova Scotia. As the premier or the health minister or re- reimagining health care in Newfoundland and Labrador, you have to think this is a place to look. Anyway. Time for a break here on VOCM. Back with more of your calls after that. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Just before we go to Mayor Hilda Whalen from Whitburn, who wants to comment on what you just heard from Dr. Sigorska, want to announce something that Brian also just mentioned a moment ago, in case you were planning on going. The Kelligrew Soiree Arts Walk is postponed tonight. It was supposed to happen there along the Manuals River. It is postponed due to performer availability. I'm sure they will provide us more information on when it may be rescheduled, if it will be rescheduled in the days to come, but it is postponed for those who are planning on going. Now, uh, go talk to Mayor Whalen. Mayor Whalen, how are you this morning? I'm fine. Good morning. Good morning. So you heard Dr. Sigorska. What what did you take away from that? Well, Dr. Sigorska is only one of many, many who has applied here in Newfoundland and Labrador that we need and didn't lift, as you heard her say. If the training, if the time is too long, she will go elsewhere. Uh, we don't have a level playing field. I, I talked to uh, Dr. Chris Luscombe uh, yesterday evening, and it should be done provincial, uh, federally. When they come in, they should have their credentials, you know, verified and background check. And and, and that way it wouldn't be such a, a difficult thing to try, try to get into this province. I've also done some research on various uh, provinces and their their intake of doctors and their incentives, uh, money, like everything is so much more than what we got, which is why we not got no doctors. Not only are all underworked and overpaid, but still uh, it does appeal to them, the province and, and the easygoing and quiet. All of this, this is an ad of but. Our problem is the College of Physicians and Surgeons has put in place for any foreign doctor that comes into this province has to do 
eight week I'm sorry, twelve weeks at Memorial University. Now that came in place in two thousand and nineteen. Now we only had twenty one doctors licensed since then. And we had seven we have presently seven on a waiting list. Don't know how long that list is going to be. Don't know when they're going to get trained. Might be six months, might be a year. Sorry, I think I'll go to Nova Scotia or somewhere else. So this is what's happening in this province. And this this they got to come up with a better way. Before they could come in and they could practice and they were tested and and they had they work with a doctor in any areas where they were seemed to be lacking then they you know they were trained in probably could be six eight weeks i don't know but there was a system in place before this and as i said to the the college of surgeons physicians when i talked to them what happened that caused you to put this rule in place? I don't remember any malpractice or any problem. I said, we have been served very, very well by foreign doctors. Why all of a sudden do you need this? In 2019, when it's already slowed down, I said, the movement of doctors, you put this in place. You really kicked the can. I said, really, the, the money, the overwork, we could have fixed that. We could have fixed that as a problem. So we fixed everything else and, and everybody else, and we're in debt a million dollars, billions. So I said, that could have been fixed. But why this rule? It, we are not on an even keel with the rest of the province when it comes to recruiting. So that is why we have so many clinics and so many doctors that are gone. They're either gone to another province or they're retiring. And we have a big problem. And I've had conversations with the Premier, and I've written them, and I've told them, this has to change. But we will not get any doctors. And, and again, you, you know our history well, and you've done the research for, for years. Um, you know, the 60s and the 70s, we brought lots of doctors from Ireland over, many of them who've made huge contributions to the province. I mean, one of them now, Dr. Parfrey, although he had come through Montreal before he came to Newfoundland and Labrador, Absolutely. is leading health who was leading uh, by the premier to lead health transformation. He certainly un understands all of this. One thing I just want to pick up on, and that's the issue of credentialization. I remember back in the 2006 federal election, that was one of the promises then made by the incoming Harper government to deal with this. And it's never really been dealt with by any government. And it leads to another challenge we have that's always in the news right now about processing people just through immigration. Now we, you know, we need to focus on how we do this. I agree. We, we, we need to improve all of these systems. But I wouldn't also want to see, and you weren't doing this, but I wouldn't want to see people passing the buck and saying, oh, just leave it to this government. This is a total so, total system solution that is, is needed here. Um, you, you know, could, a, could Dr. Sigorska, I assume, or any of the other doctors that are here that aren't credentialized, they'd make an immediate impact in your community, would they? Oh, absolutely. I, I absolutely would love to have her. I, I talked to another doctor who has a, uh, she's been here for 20 years, her and her husband, her two children, her doctors. She has someone now who wants to come in here as a family doctor in, uh, in one of the south posts. So, I mean, there are lots of people that want to come in, but if they, they're not going, you think that that Dr. Sikorska, do you think that she's going to, when she realizes she's got to do 12 weeks training, Plus, 
you might have to wait. We got a crew in now or two crews ahead of you. Do you think she's going to sit around here? Do you think she's been the first? I tell you, I did some research on doctors, and uh, Nova Scotia recruited last year 143 doctors Mm -hmm. last year. Uh, But people like her, do you think she's going to go to school or wait around for six months? I don't think so. Well, she needs needs to feed her family too, right? I mean, it's an economic imperative. But do you know that we, as a province, has had the most applicants of all of Canada? And I I was surprised to read. Yeah, I did. I didn't know that, and we've put a big yeah. push on, which I think has been right to bring people over from the Ukraine uh, to Canada, uh, to Newfoundland and Labrador specifically, and we need to do better on the credentialization. Absolutely. All right, I've got to leave it there, Mayor. Good, uh, good to hear from you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, dear. All right, that was Mayor uh, Whalen from uh, from Whitburn. Going to go to break now. Uh, Dave, and then we'll come back with Barry Patton and Vic just to close out the show after this break. Welcome back. Last few minutes. Let's go right to the lines. Barry Patton, PC opposition, official opposition shadow minister for education and MHA for CBS. Uh, Barry, how are you this morning? Uh, Good, Tim. How are you? I am good. You've got a press release out uh, calling on the new education minister to address uh, the student housing crisis as you describe it at Mon. Tell us about that. Well, I guess, Tim, it's uh, not new news to people out there that we have got an housing crisis here in the province, especially in this end of the province. It's uh, evidence by people lined up for a look at basement apartments in the last time. Yeah. People are living in tents in the parks and what have you. And I guess what precipitated this release, Tim, is that uh, with the change, I mean, we have Minister Aggie there now, and Minister Osborne has moved on to they've swapped the portfolios. I mean, and we've watched uh, our health care crisis balloon into a massive crisis. We've got the Premier now. Domestic exchange, he says, is a national health care crisis. Now, whether that's, you know, it was, before it was broken, now it's a national health care crisis. So I guess it's cold comfort to a lot of people who are concerned in the education uh, with, with housing and with, you know, among students coming in the education portfolio in general. I mean, you just got, I mean, they, now you got a minister that's, was, I mean, it's obvious that he wasn't proactive, he wasn't acknowledging problems in health, and therefore now he's in education. Uh, my call is to, you know, it's a shot across, proverbial shot across the bow and say, come on, like, we have got a major issue here, and I hope you don't consider this not a crisis like you did with health, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's proof, proof is in the pudding, so to speak, Tim, and, uh, you know, it needs to be dealt with, and there needs to be some sort of plan. I mean, we all know it's a crisis, there's no, you know, there's no magic bullet, but, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm calling or challenging the minister to come up with some sort of plan to address this, because come September, this is not getting any better, as we know. I mean, we're only, we're in July now, and I mean, uh, I mean, the department in, internally should have been working on something because this, like, is not new news. And you know, you get a new minister there, and I sure hope that he takes this seriously, and 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 deals with it and accepts the fact and tries to come up with some kind of plan in the media because we're, uh, we're it's not going to be a good fall for a lot of students uh, looking for housing. I mean, <laughs> the winter's too cold in Newfoundland to stay in the tent, Tim. Yeah, you can't you can't pitch a tent on a soccer no. field, and you bring forward that story that really astounded me. And I saw those pictures as you mentioned of people lining up for apartments. Uh, Barry, you and I are of an age when you would have never thought that would have happened, that there Absolutely. would have always been a, been a supply. A question for you. So if, if Haggy was listening to you, uh, Minister Haggy was listening to you, what what would you recommend? What should he what, – what, what do you see as part of a plan to address this? 
I think Tim, you got to kind of look at it in more a broader, broader approach. Probably you know some kind of request for proposal thing. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, and the, you know, they got housing units, and I know they're full on that. But you know, you need to carve out some sort of emergency plan right now to deal with this. It may cost extra money, but I think you got to engage, you know, engage the, that community, the people that that can that, that that's their expertise, whether they own apartment buildings, whether they got housing units, whatever the case may be. You know, it's, you need to find emergency. You know, right now you probably need to find some kind of emergency to get, you know, for the short term, emergency shelters, if if want of a better word, to you know, to protect you and work on the long term plan because we got a short window. But I think coming out and making that, you know, it's something people to say their only words. But I think it's impactful if a minister comes out and acknowledges, okay, we have got a major problem. We're looking for help. We're looking for, you know, from the public, from our, you know, partners, what have you. And then I think things start moving. But I mean, right now we have not, and over you, I haven't heard much from the department no. on this issue. And I think it's a very, it's a very valid issue, and it's one that needs to be addressed. And which was the, basically the premise of my. Uh, my, you know, my release to kind of get the conversation going. We got to do something, and I sure hope the minister takes this ser- more seriously than he did the healthcare because uh, we got the, this is going to be a, a, equally. You know, it may not have the same impact, but it's, <laughs> housing is a huge impact, and it, that uh, that also affects healthcare. As you know. One last question for you related to this: Do you know if it has anything to do with the issue of um, the, the the government had frozen the ability of Memorial University to expand its footprint? What, that sounds sort of withdrawn from all of this or distant from all of this. But the point is, is if the university had the ability potentially to acquire more property, then they could acquire residences and or facilities to build residences. Do you know if that's part of this issue as well? Uh, good question, and it's uh, and it's in the interest. Interesting aspect. I, you know, I was aware of that one as well, and I've spoken that before. But I don't, I don't know really. In fairness, maybe that may not be the problem okay. right now because it's new. It was only done in the last year, so that stuff usually is planning in place for longer. So it may, no doubt, it may have had some impact, but I'm not so sure that's the biggest problem. I think it's a, it's just a sign of the times and it's moving along. But I think that government needs to be ahead of the curve on this stuff because it's a serious problem facing, you know, facing a lot of people out there. All right. I'll leave it there, Barry. Good to talk to you. Thanks for raising this issue. You too, Tim. Thanks a lot. Okay. That was Barry Patton, the uh, official opposition shadow minister for education and MHA for Conception Bay South. Almost need to get oxygen after reading all these titles, teasing Barry and teasing the others that have them. Uh, they're doing the best job that they can. All MHAs of all sides. Uh, not playing favorites today. Now, li- likely last caller of the day, Vic, you want to talk about the Waterford Hospital floodplain. Tell me about that. Good morning, uh, uh Tim. I'm sorry, Tim. Yeah, oh, same year. That's I'm okay. Sorry. I That's okay. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a senior, and uh, I wish to congratulate our new seniors advocate, Susan Walsh. I, I think she had a had quite a write-up there on her background in uh, the Telegram the weekend, and very impressive. And I congratulate her, and I'm hoping that uh, she will do uh, a lot of things for seniors. Uh, one thing she mentioned, I think she mentioned uh, probably working on an inclusive community for seniors. Now, I see a paper a letter in the weekend there. Someone was wondering what's going to happen to all that beautiful uh, land or property in the old Waterford. Now, I know the building has to be dismantled and what have you, but I I wonder if maybe Susan could look at that and if, once they demolish those buildings 
as uh, to can we build there now a seniors, uh, totally inclusive seniors uh, community with all the amenities that, you know, including, of course, every culture and, and uh, I guess, age through, you know, and one of the areas certainly most needed here now, I think, in seniors mm-hmm. is uh, housing, and, and a lot of them can't afford to uh, actually to uh, remain. So those that do have houses, I think, uh, really sometimes have to opt, opt for uh, for long-term care or, or some other institution. Uh, I think uh, so. Maybe housing would be an area. Now, maybe research in that would be a very you know very uh, probably uh, be- beneficial to seniors. Uh, and uh, I, I, it's, it's an area that we should look at. Of course, we know also. The other, I know we had a gentleman there speaking before me um, about housing. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, I think I brought that uh, topic up before. And uh, the problem with housing was actually uh, caused by the, uh, the federal liberal government when they dissolved the, uh, the um, national housing program. We need that brought back. So the housing program anywhere in Canada is only going to be solved by the federal government and all the provinces uh, getting together, uh, so, you know, to bring back a, a reasonable, sensible program. So, no, no, we should not have people living in tents, obviously. That's my we shouldn't have people living in tents. I, I wonder as it relates to the Waterford property, Vic, also. I assume as you're talking and as you've just described that you would like to see that be, if, if something were to happen, that it would be publicly funded and publicly managed housing. You're not uh, as hopeful that a private developer may take that on? Uh, well, it seems like now I'm disappointed with the probably uh, with public or private developers actually because I'm looking looking at uh, Pleasantville. I see a few. Uh, all, I, all I'm seeing down there now is some apartment buildings, uh, maybe duplex houses, but I'm not seeing any uh, single-family units. So uh, this, uh, well, if well, I suppose uh, yes, the Waterford land. I know it's beautiful land there, and, and right near Bowling Park. If you can incorporate also that with the park and, uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's, say some research has to be done probably as to what sort of community uh, really would be, uh, you know, in this 21st century. Uh, I know I, I, I'm, imp- I'm impressed with Dannyville, they call it, or uh, the Galway. <laughs> Uh, yes. But um, maybe, maybe there's because I've I've been a senior myself, and I've been thinking about well, what kind of community, you know, can we live in that's going to be uh, take everybody in, you know, all the different cultures and the, the age, and I love to mm-hmm. see uh, children, uh, you know, as opposed to not only seniors, but uh, the whole thing would be inclusive, and, and you know, you have your shopping mall, etc. There's a lot of land there. I can't remember now how much you mentioned. There's, few, there's a lot of land there and you know incorporate that for a senior and another thing i think we should have got about 30 seconds vic by the way got to go after that no yeah, go ahead we, we need we need the seniors we we, we need a, some some survey a survey done now in here in newfoundland to on how many seniors we have and contact those seniors and see actually what their needs are as we as we speak because we really don't know rather than let the seniors go to the last when it's too late they come looking for help when it's too late uh, that's uh, well, well stated. Appreciate the call. Lots of thoughtful uh, conversation and ideas from you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Tim.
All right, that was Vic. That, uh, that That's our calls for today. Thank you. Lots of interesting stuff uh, coming out on Mount Pearl. We got some insight into the travel industry. More, you know, tell Tim your crap stuff was great about sewage. The doctor shortage, I'm hoping uh, tomorrow we're looking to interview the, the premier, uh, Premier Fury. We'll ask him about doctor shortages. We'll ask him about the state of health care coming out of the premier's meeting to see where that may all go. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll have another big show tomorrow. Lots of your calls. Obviously want to thank again, as always, Dave Williams, the man who makes this uh, airplane fly. And thank you. And just one last important uh, announcement. Pay attention if you're interested in getting the COVID-19 update, uh, interested in learning what may happen with your second booster, your fourth shot. All of that will be coming up uh, with Brian Medora and Dr. Janice Fitzgerald uh, in the next little while. For now, that's open line. I'm Tim Powers. Talk to you tomorrow.